Hi there, today's February 16th, 2014, and this is Epicenter Bitcoin, Episode 7, The Bitcoin Barbie. On today's show, we'll be discussing the chaos surrounding Mt. Gox and transaction malleability. Is Bitcoin really broken, or is this just another case of Mt. Gox incompetence? We have Johan Barbie, founder of 37Coins on the show as a guest host, to help us understand what's going on. We'll also be talking about the recent arrest of two local Bitcoin traders in Florida and what they mean for the future of in-person Bitcoin trading. If you like the work we're doing and you'd like to support the show, please go to epicenterbitcoin.com tips for our tipping address. Welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, Episode 7, a weekly podcast about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. My name is Sebastian Couture. I'm a user experience designer based in Lille, France, and also the founder of the Bitcoin Talks Lille. And I'm Brian Fabian Crane. I'm uh, the founder of the Bitcoin Service Berlin Group, and I'm a Bitcoin entrepreneur based in Berlin, Germany. And we've got a really special episode today because this is the first episode that we've done where uh, well, we're all sitting around a table. And we have a special guest today. Uh, Johan, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Johan Barbie. I'm a developer and the creator of 37Coins. Yeah, so we have uh, Johan today kind of as a guest host. He's going to help us talk through some of the topics we have on there. We're going to be talking a lot about this Mt. Gox situation, transactional mayability. So it would be great to have a, a more educated technical perspective than, than we have. So I think you can help us. Yeah, I'm so. happy to provide that as much as I can. <laughs> Excellent. So before we get into that, uh, we just want to cover real quick. Um, so we're in Berlin actually right now, uh, and uh, we've been uh, attending the Inside Bitcoins Berlin conference, which was held on February what was it, 12th and 13th, so of this week. Uh, yeah, just, Wednesday, Thursday. Yeah. Johan, you were there too. You were giving. You were on some panel too. Yeah, I was on the, t- the panel for um, trust and. Um, uh, what is it? Uh, well, bringing Bitcoin forward, trust and regulations. And regulations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, uh, so the conference was really cool. I mean, for me, it was my first Bitcoin conference, and getting to meet all these people, and getting to meet you know people like Johan and, and everybody else in the Bitcoin sphere, and especially like the, getting to see kind of the, the vibrant Bitcoin community here in in Berlin and also in Germany was really kind of cool for me. Uh, I, I really had a good time and. Um, Really, my, my takeaway is that you know, we're really at the cusp of something. Uh, you know, 2014 is where everything's going to blow up. <laughs> and I think that was a general consensus there at the conference. Well, yeah. how many conferences have you been to before, Johan? Um, I think this is my second conference. I don't know if I was in the conference in Cologne. There was yeah. a Bitcoin conference um, late last year. Yeah, I was there too. And that was a whole different scale. It was much less people. There was a lot of networking yeah, it was like going. Yeah, like a hundred-ish people there. Yeah, this was bigger. And this one was a whole different dimension. I actually got surprised by like how many international guests yeah. and how much networking was going on and yeah. talks and all kind of stuff. Yeah. No, this was my third conference after the Amsterdam conference last year and and the Cologne conference. I was there as well. And I'm going to be going to quite a few more this year, so it's, <laughs> yeah, it's <hopefully>. exciting. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, it was cool to see. It was quite similar to, in scale as well to the Amsterdam conference. I think it was um, 
There was more Americans here, I have the yeah, impression. Yeah, a lot of Americans. Yeah, a lot of Americans, a lot of Germans too. Yeah. So a lot of capital walking around. Yeah, yeah. A lot of guys in suits. But yeah, as we, I mean, we talked about this on the short segment we did on on for the Let's Talk Bitcoin uh, podcast about this conference. And because uh, I was talking to five different people, and this is what one of the things that amazes me most about this conference, to five different people at this conference who are organizing conferences this year f- where they're expecting more than a thousand people. So that's just kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. yeah, this community is growing so fast that it's um, almost impossible already to keep track of everyone, right? Yeah. Just a year ago, that was very different. You knew everyone. And I think in 2012, I, I'm not sure if there was any conference. I don't know, when was the first Bitcoin conference? So the, the Foundations conference, the first sort of major Bitcoin conference was in May last year. And uh, I know there was one in 2011 in, in Prague, I think, mm-hmm. a smaller one. And I'm not sure if there was anything in 2012. Yeah. And then last year, you know, it started coming in the fall. And now it's just crazy. Yeah. But yeah. And that's not to mention like all the conferences just Media Bistro is organizing. So this conference was hosted by Media Bistro and they're doing like 10 this year. Yeah, insane. Yeah. But are those all Bitcoin conferences? Yeah, yeah 10, uh, Bitcoin 10 Bitcoin conferences. Wow. So there's there's uh, all all across Europe and uh, I think there's one in Hong Kong. Yeah, that was everywhere. Australia. Yeah. yeah. I just want to be sure that even though they have so many Bitcoin conferences, they keep the quality up and yeah. they invite the right people. Yeah, yeah. And here in Berlin, that has been kind of an issue, like seen by the community. Um, they they had they outsourced this event to this like local company, yeah, Rising Media, Rising yeah, Media, okay. and there was no way to I think pay the conference fee with Bitcoin at the beginning. Um, they didn't include like local people from the community that much. Yeah, um, and they was, should have really uh, focused more on the local Bitcoin community. I think it, that's yeah. what shines and about Bit, about Berlin, right? Our great community. And no, that's true. I mean, there's been uh, quite a bit of discussion. I mean, I've talked with various people about putting on a conference here in Berlin, like before we knew that this was where Vincent Bitcoin happening, and uh, people definitely want to do that. But it's just you know, no one can have has the time to step up and do it because it's so much work <laughs> yeah and um and it's it was definitely inside bitcoin's conference here in berlin was not a conference by the berlin bitcoin community and, the, and there's you know uh, there's a big community here and most people weren't there you know it what, was do you, really, what do you think would have been different if it would have been organized by the bitcoin the berlin bitcoin community you know the price would definitely have been very different it would have been yeah. cheaper mm-hmm. it would have been uh, more variety of talk i'm sure it wouldn't wouldn't would not have been as well organized. I mean, these people have been con- doing conferences for... 40 years, yeah. Yeah. So well, we talked to the CEO of uh, Media Bistro. And, yeah. So it was very professional. I, you know, I'm sure it would have been much more chaotic and all over the place. It would have been uh, more variety. You know, you mm-hmm. would have had developers doing random things. I mean, you know, I organized the Bitcoin Service Berlin and we have a huge variety in things. You know, like some talks are really bad, some talks are really good, and then some are... <laughs> Some artists doing something, some developers. You always do a talk. Yeah, <laughs> I tried to. I tried to. I missed the last two ones. And uh, so I think you would have had a lot of variety. Probably not the same kind of high standard of quality, but maybe also more interesting things, more creative things. Yeah. 
Should we uh, should we get started? I'm yeah, first, we, first I just want to yeah. m- mention you know for our listeners that uh, we'll be releasing a lot of the content, um, a lot of content surrounding the conference within the next few days. I guess probably two weeks. So we've got uh, a segment of interviews that we did at Room Seventy Seven, which is a bar here in Berlin that accepts Bitcoin and first brick and mortar establishment in the world to accept Bitcoin. So we'll be releasing that shortly, and we'll also be releasing. Uh, maybe one or two episodes with all of the interviews that we did on the spot with you know, speakers such as Johan and uh, probably more than two episodes we, yeah. I think we did about 20 interviews perhaps there's so much content I don't know what we're going to do with all of this yeah. <laughs> work hard guys yeah. work and, hard. and also we recorded a lot of like, most of the talks so we'll be releasing uh, uh, well the talks that we feel are the most interesting or that were the most influential so uh, look forward to those episodes so that extra content on the feed within the next few weeks Okay, so uh, we have some really important topics this week to talk about, and we, since we've been at the conference, we've not not followed it as closely as we often follow what's been going on. So we've been kind of catching up and see what like what has been going on. Yeah, it's it's, been, it's, it's, it was surprising to be on the conference floor and nobody was talking about the news, you know. And yeah. Once in a while, somebody would say, "Hey, have you heard about this thing that's going on?" I was like, no, no, mm, maybe too busy looking at the internet. <laughs> the internet at the conference wasn't working. Yeah, but yeah, so let's uh, let's kind of briefly go through what's been going on, and then we can dive in a bit deeper yeah. about what it all means. So I think this started this whole uh, sequence of events started with Mount Cox. You know, we we all know that they've been having real trouble with uh, fiat withdrawals. So it's been very difficult getting U.S. dollars out, especially. Uh, but so far, uh, getting bitcoins out wasn't a problem. But then about a week ago, or perhaps a bit more, people started having problems getting their Bitcoins out. And um, what happened is that people withdrew their Bitcoins and they just never arrived. And then they put in support tickets, everything. And at some point, uh, Mount Cox just kind of put their balances back up, but nobody could take them out. And of course, there was a lot of panic surrounding that. Bitcoin price crashed. Um, Mount Cox made a press statement saying that they have some technical issues. They have to freeze it. Nobody knew what's going on. Yeah, and just at this point, things were not very clear. I mean, nobody knew what was going on, and yeah, Mount Gox's communications was so yeah. It's been crappy. consistently horrendous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, and then they did another press release, and they said this is a flaw in Bitcoin. This sort of yeah. in the Bitcoin protocol. Yeah, exactly. And of course, the reaction of a lot of people in the Bitcoin community was. Uh, they were very angry at Mount Cox because they felt like what was really their incompetence, they were trying to blame on Bitcoin. And But, but there was a lot of chaos uh, around that and some other exchanges actually also suspended their withdrawals. And yeah. I think right now they're all back up except Mount Cox where it's still suspended. They said they're going to release another statement on, on next Monday, so the 17th or tomorrow. So this trend, so this problem that that uh, caused Mount Gox to stop uh, withdrawals is uh, due to a, a term that we've recently uh, heard come into existence, which is which is transaction malleability, and I think that it would be important to uh, really kind of explain what this is. So 
Can you uh, you want can you explain to us what transaction malleability means? Yeah, I'll try as good as I can. Um, so this is actually not a new term. It existed in the Bitcoin community like since the beginning of the protocol. And this particular issue that was discovered that Mt. Gox uh, references um, is known is known to the community since uh, about three years. Um, what happens there is when you um, sign a transaction, the signature doesn't cover all of the content of the um, transaction. And um, what can happen with that is that people can um, listen to the network, look at the transaction, and then just mo modify certain parts of it that are not covered with a, a signature and release the same transaction again. So the, trans the content of the transaction is effectively the same where so, for example, we we're talking about this earlier. In a, in a trans, in a in part of a transaction, you have uh, multiple pieces of data, and sometimes you can have uh, the values for those pieces of data can be different, but they can mean the same thing. So, for example, it could be like having leading zeros in front of a in front of a number or something. Yeah. Sort. So there, there are specifically two things that can change. The one thing is called the signature malleability, and that's um, so the Bitcoin client relies on OpenSSL and op the OpenSSL library, and the OpenSSL library allows certain like multiple representations, non-standard representations of the same signature. So the same signature you can just write in, s in different ways, and that's one issue. And then the other um, uh, way to do that is script malleable script script sig malleability and um, this uh, references all the signatures that are in the inputs and those can be changed as well and there is no complete definite solution to that because the signature cannot include itself so how would you be able to sign the whole transaction? But there are certain steps um, that are on the roadmap of the Bitcoin development team for many years already. And those are to kind of standardize how the transactions are written. And this would prevent uh, the um, transaction um, to be able to have different signatures. But what this requires is a hard fork so that means that all the clients on the network have to go with it and we have to wait until we have um, the network um, penetrated with the new clients deeply enough before we can change over. So can you briefly talk about how, what the problem here is and how this could be exploited? So it seems like in the case of uh, Mount Gox, um, people um, released uh, the transaction, which was slightly modified. And then this transaction, instead of the original transaction, was included in uh, in the blockchain in the next block. They but what they got from uh, Mount Gox was was the hash of the original of the uh, first transaction, and they took this transaction, which was now not in the block, and they went to Mount Gox and they said, "Look, I didn't receive my money." What actually happened is that the other transaction still paid them the same amount of money. So this malleability cannot affect any serious like properties of the transaction. You still get your money, everything's same like before. But it's just harder to find a transaction in the block. Yeah. You can still find the transaction if you look at address, amount and timestamp. You will find the same transaction and you will be able to verify that you have your money. But it seems like the support team in Mongox wasn't managed very well and they weren't aware of this, of this possibility to verify that the money arrived. So, so one, another way of looking at it, I guess, is that 
there's no real way to you know change transactions, double spend money, steal money, etc. But uh, this flaw, if you know if we call it that, can be kind of used. Uh, it, it's like a social engineering thing. You no, know? you would call Mt. Gox up and says, I, "I've drew this money. Uh, it's not here. I didn't get it." And you do that by changing the transaction ID to look for this transaction, they can't find it because it, I've changed the transaction ID now. But it would seem that Mt. Gox would have to be incredibly dumb if they, you know, let's say I withdrew a thousand Bitcoins from Mt. Gox, so, you know, a large amount, and then I would go back to them and say, I didn't get it. It really seems like they should go and check what happened here and they would find Okay, it's weird. It's a different transaction ID, but I see here's the input, here's the output, there's the time. I did pay that. So if they didn't do that, it seems it would be like incredibly uh, negligent. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I don't know if they actually paid out bitcoins um, twice in that way, um, but they could simply prevent that by not publishing the transaction unless it's included in a blog. So then yeah. people would not be able to like um, listen for the transaction and modify it and publish it again. Uh, wait, can you say that again? Because uh, if if you think about how would this attack be executed, does that mean the attacker would have nodes that are very close to Mt. Gox's nodes so they can get all the transactions that come out of Mt. Gox and then if they have really well-connected nodes, they would change them and then basically hope they're faster than Mt. Gox. Is that how it will happen? I think, yeah, something very similar has to happen. And something very weird happened on Tuesday evening, where we actually saw that on the Bitcoin network, about 40% of all the transactions that any of the nodes were publishing were rewritten in this kind of way, and a double transaction was published for that. And um, yeah, you, I think um, the miner can choose randomly which one he picks, which transaction he picks, but they usually go for the first one they saw. So you would have to penetrate the network with the wrong transaction faster than the correct one would travel. I, I just, maybe I can, one, one way one could try to do that is because I think usually if you have a Bitcoin node, it would be connected to perhaps eight other nodes or something. But I think if you write your custom node, you can say you want up to a thousand connections. Oh, you can do yeah. that with a standard one. It's just a configuration. Or you can do it with standard, maybe. Yeah. yeah. So I guess that would be one way. You don't even need to have a large amount of resources. You need you to have some large amount of bandwidth, no? Yeah, the, the bandwidth and the uh, latency is probably, yeah. yeah. You have to have pretty good network equipment, I suppose, also. So uh, if we talk about these you said 25% or 40% of the transactions? I, I'm not sure. Like Andreas um, said that it was around 40% yeah. of what he saw in his wallet. Do you have any idea what the motivation was there? Um, I mean, no, what's I, the point? Why, why would you do that? I guess it's, it's, it's great that we have this open protocol, right? And so many people are working on it. And if there is a flaw, it's actually good to point out that this flaw can have serious consequences. Yeah. And um, Mount Gox just said, oh, there is a, a problem with the protocol and it's the protocol's fault. And the community didn't really look at it. They said hey, Mount Gox did some kind of wrong communication. Then someone went out and he actually, like on a massive scale, uh, fake transactions. And then people, even the community, realized that is actually an issue that confuses people and what the people think and perceive 
is what they trust in, right? So you're saying that this would be something that you know an attacker would do to prove a point? <laughs> I think so. In, yeah. in certain, like, there's no financial just, gain. It's I, just to, to prove a point guess, and get this fixed. Like, you know, yeah. you see this all the time with you know in, in just right you now internet security where somebody will exploit something in order to prove that this enterprise solution or the software is uh, has this vulnerability, so that they'll move and fix it. So you think this might but, be? If I mean it, talking about the financial incentives, of course, you know if if you're able to do that, you know you're able to do that. I mean, this would be a fantastic way of shorting Bitcoin. No? Mm. Like you sell your bitcoins, you, you do an attack like that, and then you know you rebuy, you can make thirty right. percent uh, or forty percent. So it, within a few days, so there's a there is potentially a very large financial incentive to do something like that. Someone got rich. <laughs> yeah. Um, Speaking of getting rich, you had mentioned uh, that people, some people were saying that Mt. Gox was offering to process their withdrawals faster if they paid a 5% fee. So I, I don't know how true that is or how likely that is. Where did you hear this? On Coindesk, there was an article where they basically did a survey. So they asked people to admit, you know, have you been, have you tried to withdraw money? Uh, how long has it been? How much? Uh, what was your response, etc. And they have had quite a few uh, responses, like a thousand people or something. And some of them, I think it was eight, who said that they were offered by Mount Gox that they could pay a 5% extra fee and then they would get their order uh, processed so they would be able to withdraw their Bitcoins. Now, that's, uh, of course, very worrying. It's also important to note that these were people who claimed that they had been trying to withdraw a very large amount, like a 2,000 Bitcoin, one guy, one guy like $200,000. Uh, from uh, Mt. Gox's perspective, of course, if you did something like that, it would make sense to only offer it to very large accounts because the more people you tell that, the more risky it is and more likely it's to get out. <laughs> but it's uh, yeah, extremely worrying. I don't know if it's true. It could could be fake. I mean, eight people is not that much, and I didn't see any emails or any like real solid proof. So uh, unclear, but it's certainly a possibility and extremely worrying. I mean, I think if you think a bit back, and another company with a very questionable reputation in the Bitcoin space is Butterfly Labs. And I remember there was a lot of reports too, where you know they had this huge backlog of orders of mining equipment, and of course you have a huge financial incentives to get your mining equipment first, because if you get it a month later, it's lost like right. two thirds of the value. So I think there was also reports there that you know some people were paying to get it earlier. So it's, it has a very similar tone here. I, I don't know if it's true, but uh, yeah, it's certainly a worrying. Worrying story, and if it is true, that's certainly bad news. Yeah, but you, you know, just to touch on that, you, you said that. Um, so th there's been there's been this question about Mt. Gox's insolvability. So um, you pointed out earlier that what they could do is they could sell. You know, people can't withdraw their bitcoins on Mt. Gox, but they could withdraw their bitcoins on Mt. Yeah. Gox, and then they could go and you know. By you know, by my bitstamp. Yeah, you know. of course. So an important thing. So for those people who haven't been following this very closely, is that at the moment, uh, the Bitcoin price among Gox is about half the Bitcoin price on the exchanges. And you know, the reason, of course, is that you say, well, 
how much is my Bitcoin worth among Gox? And then people, I guess the kind of opinion of people is that it's worth half as much as Bitcoin in your own wallet because the, that's how they assess the chance of actually getting the Bitcoin out. Which is interesting too, you know? So you can really say that people attribute sort of a 50% chance of getting Bitcoin out. Although it's a bit more complicated because they can't get the dollars out either. So <laughs> who knows? But what they could do is, you know, they could buy now Bitcoins at $300 with their own money, sell them on Bitstamp for twice the money and uh, make a ton. You know, they don't even need to buy them. They have direct access to them, right? They could just, that's right. That's certainly right. They could just take them, yes. Yeah, and I think that's the big issue. Like, the, the these exchanges, they accumulate not only so much money and they create so much friction, they also have these, like, central power, which isn't which is very unnatural to Bitcoin as a protocol, right? Everything is distributed. And um, I, I'm really excited about to see where this whole space is going, the whole exchange space and how that's, it's going to develop. That's a very interesting point. We did an interview uh, with uh, Tamash Bloomer at the uh, Inside Bitcoin's conference. He's the founder of Bits of Proof and he's a very well-known uh, developer. And he's working on a Bitcoin exchange and a sort of a, the code for a Bitcoin exchange where the company that runs the exchange would not have access to the funds of the people. So I think he uses multi-signature wallet addresses, mm -hmm. if I'm correct. I'm not 100% sure. That's exactly. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so that would be one way, I guess, to hopefully prevent that. And then what would also be the case there is that all the Bitcoin balances, you know, would be on the blockchain. You would see, here is my Bitcoin. Because right now you pay your money or your Bitcoins into my box and it's just... You don't know, right? You don't know where it is, if it's still there or not, and it's just kind of in this void and you hope you get it out again. So, when we were at the conference, obviously this was happening at that time. My impression when talking to people there was that this was not really a long-term issue. I mean, it, the price went down. Uh, there was all this news in the media and everybody was talking about it. In fact, we got interviewed by some guy from the Associated Press and that's all he wanted to know about. And when I was looking at the, because uh, you know, the Associated Press, they, they put together this little piece of video and then they sell it to CNN or SNBC or whatever network, Bloomberg. And it's up to those networks to put their copy on, to record their copy on top of it, right? So their spoken copy. And I watched this little piece of video, which has you know, no spoken word, just images, right? And all the images, just like Mount Gox website. He's scrolling on the Mount Gox website. You know, some graph of the price going down. So you know, you know what they're going to say about it. It's just gonna, they're just going to cover on the, this issue. And then they've got some interviews of some people from rock, blockchain. We got interviewed and we got asked about this. So, no. But anyway, so just... The media is going to cover it from this angle, and they have been. They've been covering it from the angle of, like, this is the end of Bitcoin, like, there's so many problems in this protocol, uh, these exchanges are not uh, honest, and, you know, um, it's a Ponzi scheme, like, there was an, an article in, in, in Le Monde last week where uh, yeah, the guy says that Bitcoin's a Ponzi scheme. Still. <laughs> Still. <laughs> but the Bitcoin community, they're like, no, this is nothing, you know, this is just a little bump in the road. You know, Bitcoin will bounce back. Um, yeah, so what do you think about this? Like, why do you think there's such a gap between, well, maybe because we're, I mean, people in the Bitcoin community actually know what's going on, right? Like, 
and the media just kind of blurs it all. Like they have no understanding of this. They have no understanding of the, te- the technical aspects, and they don't. It's like they don't want to understand. Yeah, they want to have a story, right? Right. And that's kind of the issue. Um. So when I went to the conference and I introduced myself as a developer, I got the same like kind of questions. What do you think about the Mongox thing? And what do you think about those spam? There are some spam transactions on the network right now, like yeah. really yeah. small amounts. And yeah, I was telling them, I think it's nothing serious. You still get your money. Everything's fine. It works as before. And they were really relieved. Uh, they couldn't believe it because there's such a hype going on around that. Yeah. And I think it's important that we as a community kind of make clear and go out and tell people that what me- media tries to achieve to make a big story out of it, like positive or negative, is not what it really is. The network is the same as before. And I strongly believe that uh, this was a like a small glitch. And it was something that was known for three years already. Yeah. I just want to repeat that over and over again. Yeah. It's, like a, it's not a new bug. Just go there and check it out um, it was just exploited in a new way and some company which is doesn't do good doesn't have good technology and doesn't do good service for years already just use this to cover their like bad doing but I, I want to kind of weigh in with a maybe slightly different perspective on this because as we mentioned before there's this consensus that you know Bitcoin is going to explode bitcoin is going to take over the world bitcoin is going to become this massive uh, payment system um, currency etc and and i believe that as well of course but that being said if we just look at this week there was a point in this week when the three largest exchanges bitstamp uh, mount gox and btc were all not processing withdrawals and that's just if you know if you think of it in that context i mean you know that's a real problem yeah i think that's a really clearly illustrates that in many regards the infrastructure uh, and just sort of stability of the bitcoin system is just not nearly where it needs to be it's not nearly where it needs to be to really take on that scale yeah um. Um, I wanna, um, I wanna argue like that actually, um, those exchanges are not the Bitcoin protocol. Those exchanges are on the edge of the Bitcoin protocol to interact with fiat. And the fiat, fiat is actually the problem. So fiat accumulates like, how do you say, like power and so on. And we have all these issues because those uh, exchanges are built in a centralized and an old-fashioned and an unreliable way. Right. The Bitcoin protocol and the Bitcoins on my wallet were as safe as always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's true. But if we if you think of the you know the, the next years, this intersection between fiat and Bitcoin is going to be one of the most important parts. And to have really rapid growth, that needs to be smooth and it needs to be liquid. And, and that will evolve. Like, at, at the conference, this was a topic that was covered by a lot of people. Is that, you know, exchanges are not going to be the central way of getting Bitcoin. Like We're trying to move towards other ways and perhaps even decentralized ways like we had yeah, the yeah. with Thomas. Uh, I, I want to point out that this just, like to me, like when the Mt. Gox thing started happening, like 10, 15 days ago, my first response was like, I didn't have any money in Mt. Gox. I didn't have any Bitcoins there, but I had some Bitcoins in some other um, exchanges. My first response, like, take it out. Like, you know, keep it on a wallet. And I had been kind of keeping my, not a lot, but I had been keeping some Bitcoin there. And 
I think this reinforces the idea that you just shouldn't keep your money in exchanges. You know, the Bitcoin should be with you. You should have them on the wallet securely, of course, you know, yeah. you know, based on the number of Bitcoins that you have. And you should have an adapted solution for that. But you shouldn't keep money on exchanges. Yeah. Never keep Bitcoins on a hosted wallet. Don't yeah. keep many of them. Or on a hosted wallet, for instance. Yeah. For example. Yeah. That's a hosted wallet. Like an exchange is a perfect yeah. example for that. Of and course. Especially where, especially yeah. where the, the most exchanges, I think all of them, don't give you private keys. So you yeah. You're, you're screwed in any way. Like, if anything happens there, you can't get them out. Well, not just not the private key, but also not the public key. I mean, you pay it in. Right, yeah. you don't even get the public key. You don't know. I mean, you just see your Bitcoins as a balance on the accounts uh, or the exchange's website. You don't see them. You don't know where they are on the blockchain. And in a sense, you don't know if they actually exist or maybe they yeah. were sold somewhere. Who knows, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's the actu- actually, that is... Um, if you think of these, maybe come back briefly to this story that some people were offered a 5% fee, extra fee to get their money out of Mt. Gox. And of course, the question also is, with all these millions and millions of dollars in Bitcoin, um, do they actually have all those Bitcoins? That's a good question. Because we know we often talk about banks, you know, this concept of a bank run. Yeah. Because, of course, a bank doesn't have all the money in cash or in deposits that they, you know, that people are entitled to. So if all of a sudden everyone says, I want my money out of the bank, that's a problem. And you want to be the first person to get your money out because if you're not, then it might not be there anymore. And we hope, of course, that with a Bitcoin exchange, that's not the case. How do we know that's not the case? Though? We don't know. We don't know. That's the point, right? How, how come nobody's talking about this? Because the, what, these, what banks have been doing for years, <laughs> yeah, exchanges can be doing also. So I... I it's Keeping it's crazy fight. to me that this is not being but, discussed by anyone. I think this adds an interesting perspective to these five percent because maybe that means like you want to do that because if you don't, someone is going to be someone's going to be you know uh, doing it ruined yeah. you know so someone might be there and left over and they have entitlement to a balance but Mangox bankrupt these. Uh, Bitcoins don't exist anymore, so you want to be the first ones out. And I actually think. We don't know if that's the case or not. It's a black hole. Like you, you don't have any transparency there, and it might be fractional reserve. Yeah, right? it might be. Um, but what's also what's the case is that once you will be able, like assuming Mt. Gox is going to enable withdrawals again, I think people are going to withdraw the money as fast as they can. Yeah, because. There, just the possibility of that being the case, the possibility of not being all the Bitcoins there means that you really want them out as fast as possible. So, I, I mean, I think that in any case, Mt. Gox is done. Oh, yeah, obviously. Yeah, I see no way how they can recover <coughs> yeah. from that. What was very interesting when BTC China last year um, stopped the free transactions, a lot of traffic went back to Mt. Gox again. And I didn't expect that because I saw so many, so many other better exchanges out there like Kraken and Bitstamp and so on. So I don't know what was driving all these people to Mt. Gox. And Kraken has no volume though, for example. <laughs> That's the thing, but it could have, like. Yeah, no, I mean, it's true, right? There's been these uh, complaints about Mt. Gox for many, many months and people, I've never used Mt. Gox. Because I always heard, well, you know, you try to get your money out of Mt. Gox, it takes months or weeks 
and uh, the price was much higher for Bitcoin. So I never used Mt. Gox. Why would you? Yeah. But but a lot of people still were, and I a year ago they had a market share of about seventy percent. I think during the crash in April uh, of last year, it was they were at almost seventy percent, and it's been kind of gradually decreasing. But even just before this, they were at, at almost twenty percent. So it's still a very significant exchange and a lot of money there. Actually, they 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 probably have more money in there that even than was traded mm-hmm. because a lot of people were just locked in there and couldn't really get it out. Right. I think that's a very valuable uh, lesson. What just happened to a lot of people that use Bitcoin? We're used to this old trust system, which is based on like how do you say big players, and the bigger they are, the more we trust them, like banks. But now people see that that's actually not true. And if they just go ahead and they trust themselves and their wallet and their backup, that's where they're really like in the best position. What do you, What do you think is the future of, of trading Bitcoin for fiat. What, what is your take on that? Yeah. With all the regulation that is happening, the uh, bust of the guys that traded on local Bitcoins in yeah. the US. We can probably talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, come, we'll come back to that later. Yeah. 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 I really wish that uh, Bitcoin trading goes more local and goes more into a like trusted community model where yeah. people know each other and they exchange Bitcoins. Um, and nothing of this gets registered on any official like government papers or there won't be tags paid for yeah. it or something like that. Let's, let's come back to that. I just want to uh, touch on one other point regarding this whole uh, story, uh, which was the story that there was a DDoS attack. And uh, I actually, you know, Bitstamp also uh, suspended uh, withdrawals last week. And it seems like they mentioned somewhere that this was not the same problem that Mt. Gox had, this transactional liability thing, but that they were DDoS. Uh, do you know about this? So, um, can you maybe briefly explain what a DDoS attack is and uh, if you know yeah. something about what's been going on? Sure. There? Um, no, I don't know anything specific about the situation at Bitstamp, but a DDoS is a distributed denial of service. So, what you do there is one node in the internet doesn't have enough bandwidth to attack a, like a big website that's connected to a very to very strong networks. So what they do is um, they either go ahead and they use like DNS server uh, mal- malfunctions where they can like uh, how do you say like um, broadcast messages and then those DNS servers attach more data to it and send it ahead. It's called am- amplification, right? Yeah, they amplify the traffic uh, through certain. Um, uh, yeah, um, they abuse services to amplify the traffic and then they jam the network of uh, where this website is connected to. And this way no one can access it for like an extended period of time. And um, there are different ways to do that. And I don't know exactly what happened at Bitstamp, but um, yeah, what, what it leads to is that the site is not available for a long period of time. Uh, what's actually interesting is that on uh, there was a Coindesk article and uh, where they mentioned this and I, I don't know how, I don't, maybe this may be incorrect, but they actually mentioned that this transactional malleability was somehow used to execute the DDoS attack. I have no idea how that would work or if that makes any sense. It might be that that was just a, sort of a mistake by the journalist who wrote that. But it's an interesting it's an interesting, thought. Yeah, it's an interesting concept to think about that uh, because 
the traffic in the in the Bitcoin network is distributed, right? It goes often the nodes have very small bandwidth and they talk to each other only. They have like trusted nodes they are connected to. So in such a distributed network, it's really hard to do a DDoS because there's no central authority you can attack and no big bandwidth you can make use of. So unless someone found out which of the nodes in the Bitcoin network below belong to Bitstamp itself, I cannot see any way to execute an attack like that. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, we what we have what we do know now, maybe just kind of summarize this all is like uh, Bitstamp and BTC are alive again. They they work normally. Mount Gox, as we mentioned, they are going to announce on tomorrow what's going on. Um, and uh, so hopefully they'll resume withdrawals again we don't know if that's going to happen and we don't know if this is all going to end in some terrible disaster where people are going to lose thousands of bitcoin or whether there will be I guess which is would be the most fortunate outcome would be some sort of gradual shutdown of uh, Mt. Cox where people can withdraw their bitcoins and then uh, finally this uh, company disappears from the face of the earth forever for better <laughs> I, I think we can all say that that would be the happy ending of this story you know? everyone would like that I think yeah, yeah. and then, then really what we can hope is that other exchanges step up no? there's been a lot of investment over the last six year, six months in Bitcoin exchanges like millions of dollars of VC money so hopefully we'll have some really high performance reliable exchanges that are trustworthy that are you know, uh, honest and that don't mess it all up. Like and, and that offer new ways of doing things. So you know, yeah, exactly. And we're, we're waiting to see what the next wave of innovation is around exchanges. Whether that's you know some some sort of decentralized exchange or yeah, you know, or make them auditable on the blockchain. Auditable like blockchain. yeah, yeah. I think that I think that will is also important. I think that will probably take some time. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in the, in the near future we need to have maybe like Kraken or other exchanges that really is kind of scale up and provide these really professional services also for uh, financial investors or people who do large-scale trading and, and really provide liquidity because I think that's more, really important. Do you think it would be interesting to have different products, financial products based on Bitcoin? Like I think it's important to have uh, derivatives, Bitcoin derivatives, shorting and things like that, yeah. But what's what's important in this context to note is that if you talk about uh, financial derivatives, one reason why they're so dangerous in a sense is that you can get massive amounts of leverage because as a as a hedge fund they can just borrow. They might have like let's say they have a billion of uh, dollars, but they can borrow. 50 billion and you know use that all to speculate and then that makes it kind of dangerous but i don't think this problem so much of the derivatives themselves i mean partially but it's mainly a problem of the leverage but i think because bitcoin uh, you can't do this no one's gonna lend you 50 bitcoins if you you know without uh yeah so i don't think you will have the same dangers even though if you have Bitcoin derivatives, I don't think they will cause some kind of large crisis. But I think they can be very valuable to uh, provide hedging and to provide some uh, services for merchants and other other um, 
agents to deal with Bitcoin in a sort of secure way and manage the risk. So I think it will be a valuable thing. I agree. Yeah, so the second story we're going to talk about is a story that came, reached us from Florida. And what happened there is that two local Bitcoin traders were arrested by, it was the, the Secret Service. I don't know why the Secret Service goes after local Bitcoin traders. Wait, are you sure it's the Secret Service? The Secret Service is what, NSA? National so Secret Service for Agency. the President. Though. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm quoting here from, uh, the original article was by Brian Krebs. He has a, he's a well-known kind of IT security a blogger and he has a blog called Krebs on security says so from there yeah. so it says like working in conjunction with the Miami Beach Police Department and the Miami uh, State Attorney's Office undercover officers and agents from the US Secret Service's Miami Electronic Crimes Task Force okay um, so so what they did is they actually just looked on local bitcoins and they looked for traders who do large trades. So on local bitcoins, you can say, you know, I do between a hundred and a thousand dollars or something like that. And then some say, you know, Open 10 it. to 30,000 or yeah, something or a hundred thousand. So very large cash transactions. So they looked for people like that and they contacted them and they made up with them. And supposedly, they told them, at least that was in a different article they mentioned, that they told them they were going to buy stolen credit cards with the Bitcoins they buy. And then they arrested those guys. So there was two guys arrested that way. And uh, I, I think it's, um, of course, it's a small story in a sense. It's just two guys. But I think it's an important story because it hints at a lot of yeah. things that may be coming in the future yeah i was always thinking uh buying and selling on local bitcoins i would be off the grid i, I would um i would not leave a trace anywhere and i would be able to get my uh, bitcoins like that's quite hard though it's especially hard if you want to build a reputation now and it's I guess it depends too, but uh, you know, people would often send their phone numbers, for example, hey, I'm there, you know, call me if you can't find me. So th those things will be on the local Bitcoin servers, you know, they'll have logs of that. Uh, plus, people also use local Bitcoins to do uh, bank wire transfers, and uh, local Bitcoins has an escrow service for that. In this case, too, local Bitcoins is going to have information on the bank accounts. Yeah, but when you talked about reputation, like there's other ways of building reputation. You know, if, if for instance, uh, you go to, I don't know, maybe you're a regular at Room 77 and you know that this guy is selling Bitcoin and he's reputable. Like, yeah. you know, word of mouth, can, you can also build rep reputation on word of mouth. Uh, but the thing is, that's very in inefficient. No, I yeah, mean, that, that inefficient. doesn't scale but that well, right? Yeah. Well. Maybe just because of that, because but you actually to, have the trust. to come to a you know a very like a smaller model for trading bitcoins. So you were but, talking about this before. Well, let's so. let's let's stick with this briefly and kind of uh, just take a step back. And it's like, hmm. uh, what does this mean? Like, is this something that's going to happen on a large scale to local bitcoin traders? Does this have uh, kind of repercussions for person-to-person -person trading? Or is this just a one-off Florida thing that some some oversellers, agents there? Well, I think, first of all, if, if someone is telling you that 
They're going to buy drugs or they're going to buy stolen credit cards or they're going to do anything illegal when they're buying you bitcoins. I think that's a pretty good red flag that there's something weird going on. I, I mean, just just think about it for a second. Why would, why would anybody in the right mind be telling you this, whether they're a federal agent or not? And secondly, uh, I think if you're ma- if you're doing, I think as a a seller on local Bitcoin, I don't know. I mean, I, I, once you start doing large transactions, you become vulnerable. And perhaps, uh, perhaps local bitcoins is not a place where you should be doing large transactions, and we should just keep it at small transactions. Yeah, or just spread it out. Um, you could have many small transactions, yeah. and then um, those guys could not cap- capture you for one big trade, right? Yeah. So with um, with the product I'm building, we're kind of tackling the same problem, right? We bringing Bitcoin with 37 coins, which is a SMS Bitcoin wallet. We try to bring Bitcoin uh, to people that are not on the internet, that are not connected to the blockchain. So using just SMS in the most remote area of the world, If you have a signal, you can still use Bitcoin. But how do you actually exchange those for fiat? That's the issue. And we have a built-in like buy and sell command, which does something very similar to local Bitcoins. It kind of makes buyer and seller find each other in an area and then execute the trade. So let's just assume like Bitcoin would be illegal, like in Thailand or in Russia. Would people still be using a solution like that or local bitcoins? And how would they go about making this really secure for themselves? That's a, that's a great question. So in your service, what you're building, are you using reputation? Uh, we don't have reputation yet because we actually, the trade happens off the system. They just use yeah. the system to find each other. Yeah. But we don't know if they did one trade or zero trades. Because, of course, the issue is if you meet someone in person and you're going to give them $5,000 to get some Bitcoin, so that's a very vulnerable thing to do. You know, you, you know you're going to go somewhere. The other person knows someone's going to show up with $5,000 in cash or whatever the amount is. Of course, that makes it very vulnerable to be wrong. On the other hand, somebody, I mean, you know, the other person knows that that person's going to show up with X amount of bitcoins on their mobile phone. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it no, goes totally. both ways. Yeah. It, it, uh, exactly. But that's why, of course, local bitcoins builds in reputation. So you say, like, yeah. you've done more trades, you've done higher volumes of trade, I trust you more. You have reviews. And this kind of goes in both ways. It quite obviously increases the security of the transactions. But. The issue here is not that local Bitcoins per se is illegal. The problem is that once you do very large transactions and once you do lots of them, then you start basically being a money services business and then it's illegal. So you have this real conflict between reputation where you want to have more transactions, you want to have higher transactions, you want them visible and, uh, and you kind of legal safety and uh, protection from um, law enforcement where you rather not have any reputation. Yeah, and in this case, allegedly in Florida, it's once you start doing, I mean, you, you start doing more than $300 per year or something. This is something that I read, but I, yeah, it seems like too low, but yeah, but um, th- there, there are some limits as to, uh, the amount of money that you can transact as, yeah. as an individual. And, and you know, this is another issue because it's different in every 
state and country. Yeah. And, um, you know, this is not known by most people. I mean, maybe in Germany you've got a similar type of law, which is one of these laws that everybody breaks. Yeah. So in Germany, I mean, I think you will have to identify people if you're above a certain amount. I I think it's either 10 or 15,000 euros. So that's one thing. So that's the money laundering thing. And then the other thing is whether you're providing a financial service. Or, or whether you do this in a sort of a, as a business, then you also have to go register, etc. And so, that's sort of open to interpretation uh, by the authorities. Not very clear, but people have gotten in trouble for that. People have had to take lawyers. They got letters, etc. So this certainly happens. So local bitcoins, I think, was asked in a press interview if they do anything about this, about local regulations and yeah. how they try to follow them. And they said they're just a small team. You know, this company is so young; it's just a few guys somewhere somewhere up in the Nordics, and they it's in uh, Finland. Yeah, yeah, and they have like more than 160 countries, I think, where their services used. Yeah, yeah. So can they comply with all those regulations? No. What they say is like we expect the people on the platform to know about that and comply with their local regulations themselves. That's, yeah. But I think actually local bitcoins could help them. So as you mentioned, they kind of show the amount of the transaction that has been done before. So if they would know that this amount exceeds uh, what is allowed in the local um, um, uh, regulatory environment, then they would kind of, um, how do you say, make that invisible and just say it's more than so much. And I think that would actually protect the users uh, from authorities or from anyone who wants to, like... Yeah, I think there's a conflict there, though. You know, local Bitcoins, they're not going to want to be in conflict with the, let's say, U.S. authorities, for example. So I I think I saw that they were also asked by Coindesk, I think it was, you know, what are you going to do about this? And I, I do think that they said they want to make sure that people are more compliant with local regulations. So, you know, one thing they could do is uh, limit uh, the trade amounts or what they might do. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at all in the future is if they require people to do, you know, upload their ID. KYC? KYC, yeah. I mean, I think that's not unlikely that's going to happen. And maybe what you'll have is that something like local bitcoins it's going to move more underground. You maybe you'll have a Tor version of local Bitcoins yeah, that's that, going to be really anonymous, but then you will still have the same issue that you might have undercover agents that infiltrate that and try to get people that exactly. way. Exactly. So the holy grail of what Bitcoiners are talking about is kind of a distributed exchange, right? That would yeah. be awesome if we kind of could get to that model. But yeah, there's could, some, somehow no one who tries to attack that. Could you, how, could you imagine that happening? And if so, how would that look like um have have you heard about the ripple model where people uh, set up those uh, gateways or what is it just vaguely maybe you can talk briefly how it works um so ripple is a kind of um system where um how do you say uh, you extend trust to certain people you extend trust to your friend of like a hundred dollars and then he can use this trust 
um, he can borrow a hundred dollars from you, and he himself has extended trust to other person, uh, to other people in the network, and trust ripples through the network. That's okay. why they call it ripple. And actually, you, um, your trust into your friend could be paid uh, through another like uh, connection in the network. So um, the only rule that there is in the ripple network is um, when you uh, you always have to accept your own kind of uh, trust back. So if that kind of comes back to you through another channel, yeah. like uh, you would pay out. But Ripple ultimately builds on um, on trust, as I mentioned. So it is not like Bitcoin in the way that's completely trustless, and uh, you know you can be secure that you get your yeah. money back. It can happen that your friend defaults, and then you're out of the money. That's it. Right. Um, so like there is no. I think there is no good solution out there to build this distributed exchange thing that would work completely without trust. But yeah. Tor is a very good idea to have a, a kind of a system running where people find each other. That's really the issue, finding the buyer or the seller. And then how can you model an, uh, a physical exchange uh, where you don't have the counterparty risk of yeah. him being a, an I, agent or something absolutely. like that. Hide it under a stone and use a scroll. As <laughs> I, I, think, I, think, I think the issue is you have really fundamental uh, conflict between sort of the need for security, which is really well fulfilled with reputation and a reputational system, and uh, this... I would say resilience against uh, government attacks and against uh, regu regulations, etc., which can attack exactly that reputational system. I like so that you use the word attack because that's exactly what it is an attack on our privacy and freedom. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, we think about, like, let's say uh, Florida, etc., the US, you can. I think that's the beginning because if we see in the future, let's say Bitcoin's become really important, uh, or we take a country like Argentina where there is a strong need at the time because there's strong capital controls and there's high inflation, so there's a strong need for people uh, to have an alternative. So if you see in the future that there is a widespread adoption of Bitcoin and that really does threaten the existing monetary system, the existing uh, kind of, you know, tax base of the country and, and how they can support what they're doing, then you might see real aggressive attacks against Bitcoin, you know, much worse than this. You might have people go to jail, you might have people, you know, get into really serious trouble for just providing this kind of service that this trade is through in local bitcoins. You know what this reminds me of? Buying and selling drugs. <laughs> I mean, I mean, think about it. We were talking about this a while ago. Yeah. So we want to you know, bring it to a smaller scale but uh, where you have this system of trust. It's the same thing, like, if you want to buy weed, okay, for instance. Yeah. We all know that from high school. You have to know a guy who knows a guy, and then he's going to trust you that, you know, yeah. you're you're not a federal agent, and then you've got to trust that, you know, he's not going to try to screw you or sell you shit, you know? And, yeah. And, and that, you know, you build a relationship of trust with this person, and eventually you get to share his number, and this is... This, when I think about this, it's exactly the same thing. I mean, yeah. and, but that doesn't scale, right? That doesn't scale very well. You have to have, you know, very many small people like on, on the ground, you know. Yeah, it doesn't uh, scale and it's also risky. It is risky. Yeah. Is it risky really? Because it's working very well. 
like I met, I remember my neighbor who always used to sell me weed and that worked really well for years. I mean, <laughs> what's wrong with that? Maybe we should go back from these economies of scale and try to like live the small world phenomenon again where kind of everyone knows each other and things are like money is based on this kind of concept. Yeah, I agree with you on this. I mean, I think this is the, I mean, <laughs> this can extend outside of money and Bitcoin and whatever and that, you know, it's what, what a lot of people are trying to do with with food for instance uh, yeah. and uh, agriculture you know bring it to a smaller local level you know maybe maybe this you know, globalization model that we have doesn't really work and you know, if we bring things down to a lo more local yeah. small you know, level uh, uh, you, we can rebuild these relationships of trust with people where people are dealing together and you know, a lot of communities are doing this too and you've got you know, a lot of communities in Europe and the US that are creating their own money you know and keeping it within the community so yeah I, I think what I think is very important in this context is that I think there will be a really big differences in the near future between how countries approach Bitcoin. Some will be very restrictive and some will be very open. And, you know, in US, for example, you have Coinbase, you have things uh, like Coinbase especially makes it uh, convenient to buy Bitcoin. And now let's say you have Coinbase and you have like things where you can buy at the, the kiosk, the grocery store, etc. Loads of different uh, options of buying Bitcoins and uh, they're smooth. So people can easily move into Bitcoin, etc. And let's say it's relatively, um, it's relatively relaxed and tolerant. Now you may still want to have something like local Bitcoins if you absolutely want to stay anonymous. But for most people, it's not going to be an issue. But then if you have other countries where perhaps there's a really strong need also to use Bitcoin because uh, the either monetary system is really messed up or because uh, for political reasons you're being pursued, etc. And their uh, systems like local Bitcoins will be very crucial because they're resilient, because yeah, they can't be shut down easily. And there, this is a real threat, I think. Can they not be shut down easily? Because it's just one single IP you need to block on your, let's say, Chinese firewall or something like that. And there is no local Bitcoin in your country anymore. Yeah, but you could move something like that to Tor. <laughs> and that, then um, That would be awesome. But there is no widely adopted application like that yet, right? That's yeah. maybe a market niche. I'll but try to build that tomorrow. <laughs> I think I think there will be if you know I mean I think as soon as someone will do that that they say like okay local bitcoins is blocked in this country someone will build it on Tor and uh, it will move there so uh, just briefly for those who are not familiar Tor is it's kind of uh, a network of uh, internet routers and nodes that um, allows you to serve the internet anonymously but it also allows you to put on websites that are hidden so those can be shut down because it's impossible to find uh, the server yeah hidden services right so that's what Silk Road used and uh, that's certainly something that we might see with a service like local bitcoins in the future if, if there are countries that attack it very aggressively yeah yeah but the problem is that you know Tor is very inaccessible to the layperson for, for now. That, anyway. That's true on the web. Yeah. But think about applications that, uh, like uh, mobile applications that have this stuff built in. Like, for example, 37 coins soon. Um, you just, with the press of a button, you're there because it knows which hidden service to access with a like certificate and stuff like that. And it builds a tunnel when you start oh. the, start the app. 
So can you can you briefly talk about that? So with thirty seven coins, you're gonna use Tor, or how how exactly are you gonna do that? Um, there is a, a similar network like Tor. So Tor is a kind of HTTP request response model where you can't do very interesting things. But there is a a network which is called I2P, which is much more suitable for hidden services, um, where you have like standing connection, a TCP socket, for example. So if you want to have fast responses, uh, you want to not only like request something from a website, but you want to have data sent from the hidden server to yourself. Then you use I2P, and it allows you to kind of have. Uh, to be anonymous in the way that there are many parties in between and all the um, all the data on the way is uh, encrypted multiple times and then the idea uh, to use this with 37 coins is to make sure that we're kind of censorship resistant to those countries that don't want us so is the the reason why you made that design decision when it comes to 37 coins is it exactly the kind of thing we're talking about now where yeah. people move against uh, something like local bitcoins okay here they did on a user level but they could also do it on an application level so that's is that the reason why you chose this uh, I2P protocol yeah exactly because I want to be sure that people keep their money in this so it's important that it continues working no matter what the government decides yeah and if we built the um, built the hidden service into it right from the beginning then we can be sure that there will be not a moment when someone puts our IP on a filter list and suddenly all the people cannot use their wallets anymore that's extremely interesting. Are you aware of any other Bitcoin service that does something similar? Um, only to all the alternatives of Silk Road where you can buy stuff online. Yeah. But that's in Tor. I haven't yeah. heard of any service that uses I2P yet for Bitcoin related uh, things. That's extremely interesting. I mean, we talked about uh, 37 coins with you before at the conference and we'll be releasing an interview on that. But I, I wasn't uh, quite aware that you were doing it this way. Yeah, yeah, that's the the whole thing is to make it censorship resistant so we can bring it to countries like Cuba, North Korea, or whatever you can think about. Cool. They they need to get internet in North Korea before they can <laughs> trade Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a thing though. There is an area on the border between China and North Korea where you have Chinese internet, but North Korean like mobile network. Right. And that's where we could set up the gateway. <laughs> <laughs> cool. We, we talked about like the legality of all of this and different places uh, I wanted to talk about just a website someone told me about at the conference it's called bitlegal.io and it's really cool because you get to click on the map and I mean, you've got like a kind of a heat map and you get to see uh, bitcoin how, how bitcoin is it's uh, bitlegal.net .net? yeah, yeah. I thought, anyway <laughs> Bitlegal on Google, and so you get this heat map that shows from like red to green how uh, well if Bitcoin is either legal or accepted, or so in different countries. And then, they, and then they, uh, you have this kind of detailed view of it, the laws and yeah. regulation that's in place. And maybe they need to uh, get into this kind of local Bitcoin stuff and uh, explain, you know, what are your rights and what whether the risks. In your country, if you're buying, if, 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 if you use certain yeah. services, or you know, like these three hundred dollar yeah. limit kind of things, the, where the nobody thing, knows about it. Yeah, the thing is with these things, it's very hard to know, and often it's not quite clear. Yeah. And you know, you might be, you might think you're fine, and you're not. I mean, I, I know in Germany, for example, uh, there's a question: Are you operating as a, you know, are you trading Bitcoin commercially or not? And there's no clear, uh, there's no clear 
line yeah even know, with ebay we had this discussion yeah. for like five or ten years in germany you like, like airbnb you, now yeah <laughs> yeah uh, it's not clear right um i don't know like gov uh, governments have two monopolies there's the violence they have they execute with police and military and there's the money monopoly they have with their local currency and we're taking away like 50% of their power when we take away the money and not all of them will just let it go some will fight back I know, but then who was it Gandhi said like first they ignore you then they laugh about you then they fight you then you win <laughs> so good that we already at this stage we're fighting already that's uh I think that's an in a good note to end on but do we have something else to talk about uh did you want to maybe talk about 37 coin take the advantage uh, yeah um, yeah I'll just introduce it briefly so um, 37 coins is your global SMS Bitcoin wallet uh, you can send and receive with 37 coins uh, Bitcoin is simply as just sending text messages and it's um, 37 coins is built on a gateway model the gateway is just an application someone needs to install on a on a smartphone on an Android phone for example and the phone number of this Android phone becomes a gateway for every other one in the country or on the same network to send text messages to it and then it gets a Bitcoin wallet opened as a response. So literally to um, provide Bitcoin wallets to one country you need an old Android phone which is worth $30 and you need to install the app and bring it somewhere where there's internet. And The idea is that those uh, people that run the gateway, it's like a business for them. They earn transaction fees. They can set a transaction fee for everyone who uses their gateway to send and receive Bitcoins. And they have further incentives, for example, offering fiat exchange to new customers and something like that. Um, and um, so those incentives are meant to kind of spread the service, to bring it to new countries and to new locations. Um, um, yeah, so it's, um, and who needs this service? Specifically those people that live in a remote area where there is no internet connection. And I think the biggest market is actually there where people are unbanked because even though our banks are not efficient, they're good enough. So we don't, people in like US and uh, European Union, Union, they often ask, Well, why do we need Bitcoin? Because we have banks already. Yeah. But those people that live somewhere in the remote areas and they have, they have to walk for like half a day to get to receive a, a money their husband who works abroad sent to them, they really see the need for that. And they don't ask why, they just ask how. How can I use this stuff yeah. and I can like receive stuff conveniently and pay conveniently? And this is what we try to achieve. So can anybody... Uh make a wallet that way and try it out yeah so just have a look at the website and there is a big input field and put in your phone number and it will open a wallet for you right away and if there is no gateway in your country it will tell you how to set up a gateway in your country you can be the first one so, so the wallets yeah. sorry so the wallets are um Can you tell us about you know some of the security aspects of this? Where the wallets are stored? Yeah. How the security keys are. So obviously, um, this is for brick phones, for like feature phones that have no computational ability whatsoever in terms of you cannot install an app on there to do anything. So we cannot keep the private keys on there. The challenge was kind of to model this in a way that it's still secure and that it's not a hosted wallet. I really don't want to write a hosted wallet for people yeah. and then they get their keys stolen just because I got hacked or something like that. 
So um, all the funds are stored in multi-signature addresses and there is a shared responsibility model between the gateway and what we call the voice pin service. The voice pin service is not distributed like the gateway, but it's a central service that validates every transaction by calling the customer, reading the transaction to him and asking for a pin. A pin is something that keep, the customer keeps in his head, in his memory, and the phone is something the uh, customer needs to own. So there are two factors to verify the transaction. The phone, something you have, and the pin, something you know. Uh, and that's the security the systems build up. Cool. And when are you releasing this? Uh, it's, it's online already since the end of December. And we have about 10 countries where gateways are operated. And in those countries and between all those countries, you can send, uh, uh, you can send bitcoins to anyone who has a phone number, really. It will, cool. it will open a wallet for them right away. And the vision I have with this system is that bitcoin adoption is kind of now with the elite, with people that know about it and that have money anyway. But wouldn't it be great to bring Bitcoin, not have it have it trickle down society and then finally reach those uh, regions in Africa or somewhere in South America where people desperately need it, but go the other way and kind of enable those people that don't have a bank yet. Yeah and uh, like have it adopted by the other six billion people before we in the West, where we have banks anyway, no, get, that's, to, get to use it. Yeah, anyway. that's a really cool vision. And I think we'll, maybe we can talk with you again in uh, about 37 coins and kind of where it's going in, let's say two months or something. We'll hear like how that's been progressing. No, I would be very happy. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, well, yeah. well, thanks very much for coming on. And it was really great having you and having your perspective. Thanks, guys. It was it's awesome. great to do this. I don't know how we're going to go back to Skype after this. <laughs> yeah. This is so much cooler. Um, yeah, so, uh, of course, um, we would invite you to follow us on Twitter at EpicenterBTC uh, if you haven't already been following uh, the conference uh, coverage. Uh, and, well, we're going to try to do some more conferences this year, I think. Uh, there's quite yeah. a few conferences in Europe, so... Uh, so we'll definitely be covering a lot of those conferences and who knows, maybe even conferences in the US or Asia or Australia. <laughs> On the moon. On the moon. Yeah, to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks uh, again, Johan, for doing this with us and uh, being our first guest. Cool, thank you very much, guys. Yeah, and if you want to sign up for a newsletter, uh, we write a uh, newsletter every Friday, and it's on the latest news and developments in the Bitcoin world, and kind of what they mean. So you can sign up for it at epicenterbitcoin.com slash newsletter. And also, if you want to tip us, we're at epicenterbitcoin.com slash tips, and we've got a uh, Bitcoin address, a uh, Litecoin address, and a Dogecoin address. So. Send us your Dogecoin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks, and I'll see you next. We'll see you next time.